Well, here I am. I'm so thankful to be here with all of you. This is my first sermon back since I was sick. And I got to tell you, like I said last Lord's Day in the announcements, I'm better. I'm not well yet, but I just could not stand to be on the sidelines any longer. I hope and pray that this lesson will encourage you, will strengthen you, will edify you, because this lesson involves everyone. It was preached so long ago by the greatest man that ever lived, the greatest preacher the world ever knew, that was Jesus Christ, the Master. And I have to tell you that as I looked at the application of what he said, I learned a great deal. I'm not talking about the generalities of the topic or of the narrative, but the specifics in terms of the application. And I hope these things will give you some clarity and perhaps help you to understand some of life's trials and some of life's things that come your way. Because living the Christian life is not always easy. It's difficult. And I think we do an awful injustice when we tell people it's easy. And I don't know why that happened. Our narrative is taken from John, the 15th chapter, and beginning in verse 1. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 as our text. Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. This is the last of the seven I am statements that Jesus made in the gospel according to John. You remember there were six others. We preached on all six and they were as follows. Jesus said, first, I'm the bread of life. And then he said, I'm the light of the world. He said, I'm the door or I am the gate. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. And the last one that we studied, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But in this powerful narrative, here in the final night with his disciples, he reveals a, a very powerful declaration of his divine nature. He said, I am the true vine. Here's a little side note here. You know, if you look at the end of chapter 14, Jesus basically says, Let's go. Let's go out. He had already been behind those locked doors with those disciples. He ate the Passover feast with them, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he said, let's go. Some scholars believe that they left immediately. And by the way, I don't know that we can know this for sure. I thought this was interesting. I thought I might just share it. Some scholars think they left immediately, while other scholars like Hendrickson said, no, perhaps they, they lingered about for just a little bit. And the narratives that, that exist between chapters 15 and 17 quite possibly could have happened in about 10 or 15 minutes. In other words, our master, Jesus Christ, understanding they needed some more instruction. They needed some more encouragement. And it's entirely possible that he just paused before they departed, after he said, let's go. And all the things that are found in chapters 15 to 17 then occurred over the next several minutes. I don't know that that is to be true, but as my late father-in-law would say, that's free. No charge on that. All right, what do we know? What we know is this, and I'm going to notice some very obvious things, and then we'll get specific later. We know, number one, the vine dresser or the farmer is God. 
in this little story. Number two, we know that the vine is Jesus Christ. And the branches are those that are attached to the vine. What does the farmer do? The farmer does what any good farmer does. He cuts off the bad branches and he prunes the good. I want you to just hear that, please. Pruning involves cutting. And cutting involves pain. But God prunes the good. So if you get pruned, don't think you've been bad. God only prunes the good. The ones that are bad, the bad branches, we'll get into this in just a moment. The bad branches are cut off, but the good branches are pruned. Let me give you an example, by the way, of two disciples. By the way, they both committed a sin. And I think this is very important. They both committed a sin. They were both part of the original 12 apostles. They had a similar sin, and they both betrayed Jesus. One betrayed Jesus, and that was Judas Iscariot, and that he sold the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. The other committed a sin, too. He betrayed Jesus, and that he denied him, even cursing and swearing three times, I know not the man, and that was Peter. Yet Judas was cut off, and Peter was pruned. Why was that? How come Peter didn't get cut off? Why was Judas pruned? Let's back up just a little further. Let's notice what happened in Peter's life. Shortly after, Jesus, uh, Peter denied Jesus, vehemently denying, cursing and swearing, I know not the man. Jesus is crucified. He rose from the dead. He spends those times with his disciples, and he talks to Peter. And do you remember what he said? He said, Peter, do you love me more than these and Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. He asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, tend my sheep. That's the new King James. He asked him a third time, and you could just imagine the frustration, perhaps, in Peter's mind. He said, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you, I, you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. Peter confessed three times his love for the Lord, one for every time he denied him. You know, scholars oftentimes refer to this as the second conversion of Peter. Now, let me just say this. If God would have just cut Peter off for committing a sin... Peter would have never been instrumental. Peter would have never been able to be the one to convey those words on the day of Pentecost, preaching the first gospel sermon with the opportunity to respond to it, giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven in Acts chapter 2. He would have never been able to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the first Gentiles, the first people that became Christians that were not Jewish by blood. In Acts chapter 10, in the household of Cornelius, he wouldn't have been able to do that either. He wouldn't have been able to continue his work as an apostle and later on becoming even an elder in the Lord's church. He wouldn't have been able to do that either if God would have just cut him off. What's the difference? Peter was a true disciple that made a mistake. Peter repented. Repentance is, uh, is implied by behavior. Repentance is implied by his life. That's the point. Judas was different. 
Judas made a decision that was permanent. Let's talk about Judas for just a moment. Judas was cut off. Peter got pruned. Remember when Jesus was instituting the Lord's Supper? When Jesus was there behind those locked doors, as I mentioned a moment ago, he's there with his disciples. And we find that Judas is there to his left. You know, sometimes people think that the ultimate position of honor, like the honorable guest, the most honorable guest, was to the right of the host. That was John. He was to the right of Jesus. They didn't have chairs like you and I have. They were reclined on those couches. And no doubt John was reclined back and leaning on the breast of Jesus. And no doubt John, as the Bible says, was the apostle that Jesus loved and all of that. But did you know that the ultimate position of honor was not the one to the right? The ultimate position of honor was the one to the left. Do you know who Jesus put to his left? He put Judas. One after another, an offer of an appeal of love reaching out to Judas, but to no avail. That's why, by the way, when Jesus served that time, he served Judas first. But Jesus knew his heart. Jesus would then say, one of you will betray me. And the disciples would say one after the other, Master, is it I? And another would say, Master, is it I? And finally, Jesus said, It's the one that dips his hand with me in the dish and reveals that the vile traitor would be Judas. And we know the story, right? But then do you remember what Jesus does? And I would imagine in a soft whispering tone, he turns to Judas and he says, The King James says it like this, Whatsoever thou doest, doest it quickly. Whatever you're going to do, do it. Get it done. Just go. And then these words, please get this. And Satan entered Judas. I don't believe for one minute that that meant that Satan demonically possessed Judas. I believe what that means is Judas was no longer listening to Jesus. He was no longer influenced by Jesus. He was now only influenced by the devil. And he went out and did his thing. We don't need to go any further in what he did, except we want to talk about his decision. His decision was permanent. Peter repented. Judas did not. Now somebody might say, well, Judas committed a sin, but he had no remorse. That's not true. He had tremendous remorse. In fact, Judas comes back and he takes the money and he said, I can't take the money. I betrayed innocent blood. You know what they said to him? Big deal. That's your problem. See you to it. That's your problem. Then he goes out. Is he still remorseful? Horribly so. Did he repent? No. And he goes out and he hangs himself and the Bible says his bowels gushed out. Do you know what the Bible describes or how the Bible describes Judas and what happened to him? It says, and then Judas went to his own place. Do you know what that means? When it says he went to his own place, it's another way of saying he got what was coming to him and he was lost. Why? His decision was permanent. When people leave the Lord, don't ever let it be, please, if that is you, if that decision is permanent. Because even if you leave, it's not too late as long as you're still alive. You can repent. You can come back. Oh, wonderful would it be if you would do that.
Don't let it be permanent. Judas was permanent, and it was too late. All right. I want to make a point here before we go any further. I am so thankful that God did not cut me off. In my life, the times I made a mistake, trying to live a Christian life, but made a mistake because I'm a human being. And we're all broken. And I don't care who you are. I'm going to tell you right now, you're all, we're all broken. We all sin. So don't start thinking that you're not, because you are. I hope that didn't sound too harsh, but I'm just being real direct here. That's all of us. Me too. We all sin. In fact, that's what the Bible says. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Aren't you glad that God didn't cut you off when you were weak and committed a sin? Aren't you glad that you are still in the good graces of God? Aren't you glad that you are still among the faithful? That God didn't just cut you off? But you know something? That's not what we do sometimes, is it? Sometimes we require of others more than the Lord requires. I'll give you an example. We hold people sometimes in high esteem. Sometimes we hold them up on pedestals. That is wrong. Don't do that. And then when that person commits a sin and makes a mistake, the fall is great. And do you know what sometimes we do? Cross him off. He'll never recover from that. He'll never bounce back from that. Let's not do that. Please, let's not do that. Because God doesn't. God doesn't do that. I was talking to somebody one time. Person was making fun of somebody for making mistakes. Being critical of somebody that was making mistakes. And I said, um, okay. Do you not make any mistakes? And this person said, not dumb ones. Is there another kind? We all do. Come on. Let's not be that guy. When somebody makes a mistake and sins and repents and makes it right, let's be like God. And guess what? You and I don't do the pruning. Only God does. Hang on to that thought. Much more on that in just a moment. Okay, let's notice some characters, shall we? There's two main characters. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Let's notice now. First of all, Jesus is the vine. God, the father, is the farmer. The farmer planted and cares for the vine. The farmer cuts off the bad and prunes the good branches. The question is, who are the branches? The branches are the disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. God cuts off the bad, he prunes the good. All of life comes from the vine. And by the way, there's also a sense of belonging, isn't there? Let me just say this too. I don't care where you come from. I don't care what your background is. I don't care who you are. And I don't care how many talents you have or how few talents you have. If you are connected to the vine, it means you're connected to Jesus and it means you belong. You belong. All of that's true about being part of the life force or the vine. But Jesus didn't just say, I'm the vine. Why did he say it like this? He said, I'm the true vine. Why did he say it like that? 
The reason he said I'm the true vine is because there was a false vine, a degenerate vine. There was a fruitless vine. There was one who bore fruit that was not good. One scholar said, useless, inedible. Now, obviously, we're talking metaphorically, okay? We're not talking about real fruit hanging on trees. We're talking about spiritual fruit. So who was the one that was the degenerate vine? Who was that? The degenerate vine, the corrupt vine, was Israel. They were degenerate. E.M. Zer said it this way. Israel had produced a wild fruit in the form of false religion. Now, I didn't say the word degenerate. I didn't come up with that on my own. The Bible does. And let's look at the passages. First of all, let's notice Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 21. Yet I had planted you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant of an alien vine? Another passage of scripture where Israel is presented as a vine. We go to Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made it a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. I'm not enjoying that. Good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes. God did everything to give all that was necessary to bring forth good grapes. But they brought forth that which was sour and useless. Israel was the vine in the Old Testament. And you know that metaphor was carried through in the Maccabean period. I'm not going to go deep into the Maccabean period. The Maccabees were a rebel Jewish force that rose up to take Judea. But they existed in the period of time, I'm just going to be very general, between the Old and New Testament. Let's just leave it at that, okay? But the idea of Israel being the vine was carried through even through the Maccabean period. And the Maccabees, what they did is they minted their own coin. And on one side of the coin, they would put a vine. Do you know why they did that? Because they took great pride in being connected to God. They said, we are Israel, we are the vine, we are connected to God, and they took great pride in that. So even on minted coins, they put it there. They were connected to him. But on the scene, here comes Jesus. And Jesus is saying this, no, you Israel are not the vine. You are not the true Israel. He said this, He said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by or through me. Folks, I'm going to tell you something right now. Please get this. If you want to go to heaven, and I know you do, I'm talking to an audience of people, and everybody here, I believe with all my heart, wants to go to heaven wants to go to heaven to go be where God is someday, the Father. The only way you can go to heaven is to be attached to the vine. The vine is Jesus Christ. Jesus said that no one comes into the Father except by or through me. You got to get in the vine. 
And later on, we're going to talk about exactly how you get in the vine. And number two, got to remain in the vine. Got to do two things. Got to get in the vine. Got to remain in the vine. Jesus is the vine. The second character in this picture is the vine dresser. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. That's the farmer. The farmer cares for the vine. He plants the vine. In fact, all that's true. Um, the father was behind everything Jesus did. They did everything together. Notice, please. The father sent the son into the world. The father laid out the plan. Jesus said, I only do the will of my father. He said, and I only do what pleases the father. So the father cared for him, provided everything for him. He provided the Holy Spirit and gave it to him without measure to empower him through his ministry. And by the way, I want to make a little point about the phrase without measure. Do you remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples? They didn't want him to go. He said, I have to go. It's expedient that I go. They couldn't imagine a life without Jesus, their master, who they had served and followed and for three years had hung on his every word. And yet Jesus said, I got to go. It's a good thing that I go. It's expedient that I go. He said, if I don't go, the comforter, that was the Holy Spirit, will not come. But I'm going to go away. And I'm going to send the promise of my Father to you. And he was talking about, in a miraculous sense, he was talking about the apostles. And he told them that I'm going to send you the comforter. Some translations say, helper. What did Jesus say that that helper was going to do for the apostles? It was going to guide them into all truth, number one, and it was going to bring to remembrance everything Jesus said to them. They had the Holy Spirit with measure or limitation. The only one that had the Holy Spirit without measure was Jesus. And God the Father, the farmer, gave the vine, Jesus, the Holy Spirit without measure, everything he needed in his ministry. And as a result, he is the true vine that possesses true divine life. Again, I'm going to say it again. If you want life, if you want the life he possesses, got to get attached to the vine. More on that again later. Verse 2, though, introduces the branches. Let's talk about branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That's the point. Now, if a person is going to be cut off, remember this. If a person is going to be cut off or taken away, don't let it be the end result, because verse 6 talks about the end result of that. We don't want that. We don't want any part of verse 6. It, it says they're cast into the fire and burned. That's just a picture of being lost. Let's not do that. Let's not be cut off permanently. Let's not make permanent decisions away from the Lord. Let's not do that. But those that are good, he prunes. Two kinds of branches. I want to be the right kind, don't you? Yes. Now, we notice that Judas was cut off and Peter got pruned, but how did Jesus phrase it? I've been saying good and bad. That's my words, okay? I've been saying good and bad. Let's use the words of Jesus instead. Those that bear no fruit and those that bear fruit. Those that bear no fruit, I've been calling bad, they're cut off. Those that bear fruit, I've been calling good, they're pruned. That's what the Lord says. Here's somebody else too. Well, first of all, who are the ones that bear fruit? And please get this point. 
Who are the ones that bear fruit? All faithful Christians. I didn't say some. I didn't say the ones that sometimes we think, boy, they do a lot. I didn't say that. Who are the ones that bear fruit and who are the ones that are good? All faithful Christians. All. Here's somebody else, though, that might fall into this category. Maybe somebody that would attach themselves to the vine on their own with their own terms out in the world thinking they're attaching to the vine on their own terms but they're believing in and practicing a false religious system. They would be considered those that would be cut off. They're not bearing fruit because what did I say? Those that bear fruit are all faithful Christians. They are good and guess what? I'm going to say it again. We're all going to get pruned. It's coming. So my question is, does every faithful Christian have fruit? The answer is yes. That's how you know you're a Christian. The Bible says, by your fruits you shall know them. All right, what is fruit? Now you can take all kinds of individual particulars and you can plug them in, but you can plug them into these three things. What is fruit? And I think it's important, by the way, that we don't just teach in generalities and give a general concept. We've got to give some specifics because everybody's wondering, well, am I bearing fruit? Man, am I bearing fruit? What is it? He said that, I, that all faithful Christians bear fruit. Well, what is it? Am I bearing fruit? Am I doing that in my life? What are those things? What do they look like? Here they are. Three things. Number one, righteous attitudes. Number two, righteous virtues. You know, the Bible says, add to your faith virtue, virtue knowledge. Knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, 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 brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. The seven Christian graces, you know what they're called? That's virtues. How do I know if I'm bearing fruit? Every, every faithful Christian's doing that. Righteous attitudes, righteous virtues, but one more, righteous behaviors. And by the way, if I have a righteous attitude, if I'm trying my best to apply righteous virtues, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to have righteous behaviors in my life. It's the manifestation of what I am on the inside. That's all true. You've heard me preach that a million times. Okay? Now, here's the point. All faithful Christians bear fruit, but it may not be anywhere near enough. So guess what? It's coming. So you can do what? You can bear more fruit. When you bear fruit, much fruit, you prove to be a true disciple. The Bible says without faith, it's a poss- it's, it, with faith without works is dead. So the only way that you know if you're a true disciple is by evidence, and evidence is, tr- is fruit. Oftentimes, too, we talk about Christianity as a transformational period or transformational idea, and it's true. It is about transformation. But please get this. Transformation is not a destination. It's a journey. Transformation is not an end-all perfection. Let's look at the passage first. Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Okay. It's not an end-all, I've made it, 
And folks, sometimes, let's be careful. Sometimes we think, and it's easy to do that. Sometimes we think, I've arrived. Sometimes we think I've arrived. And sometimes we think because we think we've arrived, sometimes we think, sometimes we think because we think we've arrived that somebody else has not. Be very careful about that, please. Be careful about that. Because being a Christian is not about a destination. Being a Christian is about a journey. It's a process. It's a process in our life. Okay. In fact, it's this right here. Now, nothing works. It's not perfection. It's a dominating direction. If you're taking notes, write that down. If you want to talk about being transformed, it's not perfection. It's a dominating direction. That's what it means to be a Christian. All right. So a good disciple not only bears fruit, but a good disciple gets pruned. Question is, what's the instrument that God uses? In John chapter 15 and verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What is the knife? The knife's the word of God. I'm going to ask you to do something for me, please. The idea is that the knife is used to prune us to bear more fruit. But I'm going to ask you not to draw any conclusions, because we're going to talk about providence in a minute. Do not draw a conclusion based on the pruning process yet, please, until we get to the end. What we know for sure is the knife is the word of God. That's the word. That's the knife. In agriculture, the pruning process can mean anything that cleans the plant to make it more productive. Philo, a Jewish theologian, said this, As superfluous shoots grow on plants, which are a great injury to the genuine shoots in which the vine dresser cleanses, and he uses a knife and prunes it because he knows it's necessary. So God cuts off some of the branches completely. But for the rest of us, God goes to work on us with a knife. He comes along in our life with a knife and it's painful. He cuts, he cuts sin. He cuts useless, wasteful behavior. He cuts preoccupation with things that don't matter. How did he do that? Remember, don't draw a conclusion yet. The only knife is the word of God. My question is this, what about providence? What about things that God either makes happen or God allows? The question is, does trials in our life have anything at all to do with this process? The answer to that is yes. Yes. Again, the knife is only the word. They play a role, they're not the knife. Let's talk about some of them. What about this? What sickness? How about hardship? How about loss? 
How about disappointment? How about pain? How about failure? How about all kinds of suffering? We're going to get to how God uses those things in just a moment, please. But let's notice our attitude and what our attitude should be. Let's be like Paul. 2 Corinthians 12 and 10. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Do you know why? Because God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. Don't you see? We're all weak. And that's a good thing. You know why? Because when we're weak on our own, that's when God shows up. Do you know why Peter and the rest of the apostles failed miserably in denying the Lord? They tried to rely on their own strength, and they failed. You've got to rely on God's strength, folks. That's where strength comes from. I think God wants us to hear prayers like this. I'm nothing without you. I can't do this without you. I am weak without you. Please help me. I need your strength. I am nothing without you. You know what the Bible says as Paul wrote to those Thessalonian brethren? God is faithful that he will what? He will establish you. He will strengthen you. Strength comes from God. So when we're at our weakest state and we turn to God, oh, that's when God shows up. He gives us the strength. We're nothing without him. How about James? James 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What else would Peter have to say? 1 Peter 5 and 10. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, get that, after you did what? Christians going to suffer. Oh, isn't it just supposed to be nice and fun? After you have suffered a while. Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. That's from God. That's from God. I don't know about you, but that's good stuff. That's some practical stuff. Now you can really rely on God. They, so these trials play a role in the pruning process, yes, but the affliction is not the knife. The knife is the word of God. So my question is, how does God use then the word to prune us as we go through the affliction? Here it is. If I go through something very difficult, and I've got a poor attitude about it, and I'm resentful. And I'm disrespectful for God's purpose. And I, tr and I blame God. And I don't think it's fair. And I feel sorry for myself. You know what we used to call that in the old days? Or the old times called it stinking thinking. You got all that stinking thinking. Guess what happens? Listen to me now. Then you go to the word of God. And the word of God convicts your heart. The word of God is the knife. It indicts you for your stinking thinking. You start to realize, wait a minute, what am I doing? What am I doing? I was wrong in that. Guess what? You just got pruned. 
so you can go be better. What if I have a terrible thing happen to me, but I'm not resentful? What if I'm not blaming God? What if I'm not disrespectful for God's purposes? What if I handle it properly like you should? But I go to the word of God and man does it strengthen my convictions. It reminds me of what I knew was right, but man, I'm really ready now. And I'm so thankful that I made it through the trial. I made it through the sickness. I made it through whatever. And now I got a different mindset, even more dedicated to God. Guess what? I just got pruned by the word of God. Why? So I can bear more fruit. Trials are the handle of the knife. The blade is the word of God. And remember this, please. God only and always prunes the good. So let's just do this. We got a choice. We can say, why me, Lord? Or we can say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for thinking enough of me and considering me one of your own. Thank you for considering me in this, Father, that I'm one of your faithful and for loving me enough to prune me so I can be better than I ever thought I could be. Thank you for the knife. Thank you for the word of God. Got a choice. Why me, Lord? Or thank you, Lord? I've said this for years, too, by the way. People say, why me? Let's just say, why not me? What makes us any different? There's, there's, there, there's stuff going on all over the world. People run into all kinds of heartache. Okay, let's stop doing that. Let's not say, why me? Let's say, thank you, Lord. Spurgeon said this about the word of God. It's the word that prunes the Christian. It's the truth that purges him. The scripture made living, made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit eventually and effectively cleanses the Christian. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the knife, but the knife is the word of God. All right. Let's put more emphasis on not removing the trial. Let's put more emphasis on handling the trial. I want to share something with you if I may, very, very personal. My father, in my mind, and he was not perfect, but it was just he was my dad. When I look back on my father, I think my father was a great dad. But you know something? Not everything my father did was worth repeating as a father, so I didn't. And man, I hope my kids would do the same thing. I hope they would look at me as a father and some of the things that were not worth repeating as a father, they would chuck that out. But there were two things that my father did that were the two greatest gifts my dad ever gave me. Number one was instilling me a love for Jesus. And number two, my father never tried to remove disappointments from my life or shield me from them. He just taught me how to handle them. What a great gift and a great tool for life. When I was 10, I was playing, and he did that from a very young age. When I was 10, I was playing in a championship game. I was playing for my father's team, and we were really good. We were undefeated, and we finally got to the end, and we played a team from out of town that was very, very good, a very formidable foe, and you know what happened? We played this game, and it was hard fought, and it was 0-0 zero, zero, zero at the end of the game. So it went to overtime. Yeah, even at 10, they went to overtime. And we fought hard, and we lost, and I cried. 
My father was wonderfully supportive for a few minutes. But if you knew my father, with the support came the lesson. It was coming. He said, son, all right. It's time to handle it. Son, you've got to learn to win and not brag and lose and not cry. He said, that is life. He didn't say, get over it. I hate that. Get over it. You know what you got to do? You got to get over it. Oh, okay. No. Son, you got to handle it. You got to take it. In 2010, I was first introduced to something that I'm against, and I still am against it. I was against it then. I'm against it now. I was holding a meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, and there was a convention in Nashville at the time, and there were people there at church on Sunday morning that went to that convention. And the convention was to get together and have all these debates whether we should keep score in youth athletics. Now, please listen to me because I'm going to say something here. I have been misunderstood, and the misunderstanding is my fault. Okay? I'm going to be very honest with you. It is my fault. I've been against that. You know why? Because I've said stuff like, you can't remove competition from youth because life is competitive and people have taken that to mean, well, Frank's ultra competitive and it's all about winning. That is not true. It's not about winning. It's not about teaching them to compete. It's about teaching them how to lose and handle it. That's what it's about. Because you know what that's called? Life. It's just life. There's a famous saying, and I believe in it. It says, this world is not all sunshine and rainbows. It'll knock you to your knees and leave you there if you'll let it. Nothing will hit harder than life. But it's not how hard you hit. It's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's life. Trials are coming, folks. They are. They're the handle, the knife, the blade is the word of God. All right, one final thought about this, and we're going to go into our conclusion. Just a thought. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe the trial that you're going through has nothing at all to do with you? Sometimes we say, well, what would I, what I do? Nothing. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe God is going to use you with your positive attitude and your positive example to strengthen somebody else's faith? Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it has something to do with that person way over there. Maybe it has something to do with someone who's in the world that may look at your example and say, I want to come to Jesus the word of God is the only thing that has the power to save, but maybe your example will help them, as the Bible says, glorify God in the day of visitation. Just maybe. Welcome the challenge. Remember, God only prunes the good. Let's not say, why me? Why me, Lord? Let's say, thank you, Lord. So in conclusion, Jesus said, I'm the true vine. He's the only one that's connected to God. So if you want to go to heaven, you've got to be connected to the vine. I told you this. We're going to talk about how to connect to the vine. Here it is. Here it is. This is the only way to connect to the vine. If you've never done this, you could do it today. You could be connected to Jesus Christ. You could be one of the vines, that, one of the branches we talked about that are good. Here it is. Attaching to the vine. 
You've got to hear the word of God, Romans 10, 17. You've done that today. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but you're not done. You've got to do something. You've got to believe with all your heart. Hebrews 11 and verse 6, but without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So you've got to hear the word of God. You've got to believe in Jesus with all your heart. What else? You've got to make a change. You've got to repent of your sins. Acts 17 and 30, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. You've got to say, look, I'm not going to live like I've lived anymore. I want to live for Jesus. That's all that means. You've got to say something. It's the best word you'll ever say. You've got to confess with the mouth the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. Acts 8.37. Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All of these steps lead toward or point toward the point of salvation. But it doesn't put you in the vine yet. This does. You have to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Mark 16.16. 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. If you'll take those steps of obedience today, if you will do that, Jesus will add you to the vine, the life. And guess what? Man, we can go to heaven. We can see God, and we can honor him and glorify him for all eternity. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.